Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Morning, church family. This is our final regular celebration Sunday of 2022. You believe that? Next Sunday is Christmas morning. We're going to do things very simplistically. It's just a gathering. The following Sunday is New Year's Day, January 1st, and that's also going to be more of a simplified family focus service. There's not going to be a Journey Kids program. We're going to be all together here New Year's Day 2023. Crazy, eh? The Verhules did a good job there this morning, didn't they? Emma... Emma Verhul is in my life group, in our life group, and I'm always encouraged by what she has to share. Good, good speaker, eh? Good, good with her words. Very good. So thank you to the Verhuls and for that prayer. And Jack, lighting the candles, they're all lit. Good man. Today we're in Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 2. And I want to talk about the simplicity of Christmas. The, uh, the extraordinary in the ordinary. Maybe you could say the miracle in the mundane. Isn't that what peace is? Peace is the miracle in the mundane. The fact that we get to be with God because of Jesus Christ, God with us, in the ordinary every day. Isn't that the miraculous? Luke chapter 2. You know this passage well. Let's, let's read from verse 1 to verse 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, just one second here. You know what the beautiful thing is about that? The decree that went out from Caesar did not override the decree that went out from God. That last song we sang, God is sovereign. He's over all. What the enemy meant for evil, he turned for good. What Caesar Augustus meant for war or his own personal pride, God used for his eternal plan of redemption. God wasn't thrown off when Caesar said, hey, I'm going to ask everybody to go to their hometown and be registered. It actually fit in perfectly with the redemptive plan of God throughout the ages. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. We talked about that last week. This is an important fulfillment of prophecy. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Perfect timing, right? And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him in a manger, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. We're going to talk about these shepherds today. They were keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. There it is again, fourth time. Fear not. For behold, 
I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Notice the comma there. It's not Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. It's Mary and Joseph and the baby was in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, this is the quintessential Christmas story, right? This is it. Every church Christmas cantata from the time you were, this was read. Maybe a child, maybe a narrator at the Christmas play. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. We've heard this, right? We know this story, don't we? We do know the story, don't we? You got the donkey carrying pregnant Mary to Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph are in a big rush, right? They're knocking on all the doors of all the inns because Mary's water broke and she's in labor and we need a place right now and we just arrived off the road. And Joseph would knock on the door and say, is this an inny? And then the innkeeper would say, no, get outy. <laughs> Mary and Joseph find a stable where Jesus is born. You could say he was born into a pretty stable family environment. Did your mother ever ask you if you were born in a barn when you left the door open? The shepherds are outstanding in their field. And then there were angels in the outfield. The bright star is shining gloriously over the manger like a heavenly nightlight. Not a creature is stirring, not even a mouse. The three wise men arrive on camelback that very night. They were on a star trek of sorts. They're presenting their gifts to the newborn king. It's December, it's year zero. Fresh blanket of snow coats the ground, the little drummer boy arrives. That's the Christmas story, right? Isn't it? The, the passage says, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Isn't that what we've done over the years? Isn't that what people did since they heard the news? We, we wonder. Causes wonder. We ponder. Maybe we try and fill in the blanks. What would it have been like? How did it take place? Let's talk about what the Bible actually says happened that night, because it's really simple. Joseph and Mary, first of all, they had to travel 150 kilometers. Oh boy, it just says they went up. They actually traveled south, but the topography was going uphill. So 150 kilometers uphill. Mary probably didn't walk the whole thing as a pregnant woman. I don't know, maybe a donkey carried her. Maybe she rode on a horse, on a cart. I was going to say horse next, but... 
anyway, they, they make it to Bethlehem. We're not told those details. They may not have been in a huge rush. Her water may not have broken on the way. Jesus could have been born a month after they arrived in Bethlehem or maybe an hour after they got there. We don't know. It just says while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It doesn't say there were multiple inns. It just mentions one. There was no room for them in the inn. The Greek word means guest room. It doesn't necessarily mean motel, super eight. We're not told about an innkeeper. I think that was just a, a position that was added to the Christmas play for little Johnny to have a role so his mom could get a picture. <laughs> we don't know that it was a stable that Jesus was born in. We don't know that there were animals around. It doesn't say anything about animals. We just know that he was placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And the manger isn't like this wooden cradle with hay to cushion where the baby was laying. It's probably more like a trough carved out of stone that they would have poured buckets of water or buckets of food into. And that's where Jesus was placed after he was born. We don't know that the star was shining a bright light into the manger scene like every Christmas card you've ever seen. The wise men reference a star rising in the east in Matthew 2. The wise men likely didn't arrive the night that Jesus was born. They had to travel. They consulted with King Herod in Jerusalem before they arrived in Bethlehem. It says when they arrived in Bethlehem, the star was over the place where the child was, not the baby. Child sounds older to me than baby, doesn't it? Uh, Jesus could have been coming up on two years old at this point, some people suggest. And they were in a house, the scripture says. We don't necessarily know that there were three wise men. There could have been two, there could have been 12, but they did present three gifts, which is why people suggest three wise men. And we don't know anything about them riding on camels. And it likely didn't happen on December 25th. I hope that doesn't rock your faith to the core today. There, there was probably no snow, probably no little drummer boy. The earliest record suggests that Jesus was actually born in the spring, somewhere between AD 6 and AD 4. Now, why am I saying all this? Why am I wrecking your mental picture of the nativity and the manger scene. That's not my intention. What, what I want to do is to draw us back to the simplicity of the Christmas message. Because it's a real simple message. If not for the angels, it's really just an ordinary story from the outside, isn't it? Donkeys and camels are cute. Rushing from inn to inn is exciting. Wise men in the barn is kind of curious and captivating. But none of those things are specifically central to the message of Christmas, the story of Christmas. Do you see how simple the story is? Jesus is born. Gabriel announced John's birth to Zechariah and the coming king. Gabriel announced the virgin birth, the power of the spirit to Mary. The angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph in a dream and told him to take his wife, name the child Jesus. And then Jesus is born. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. They laid him in a manger. It's very simple. Maybe even ordinary from the outside. Here's the time in history. The tax, the town, no vacancy. 
So they placed him in a manger. Where, where's the pizzazz? Where's the intrigue? Where's the glory? Where's the, the excitement? After all, this is Jesus' birth, right? The savior of the world. The Messiah foretold in Old Testament prophecy. Alfred Edersheim found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah. Conservatively, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 prophecies from the Old Testament in his ministry. Many of these prophecies surround his birth, the town, his lineage, the language used in these angelic announcements that we've been looking at. This this should really speak to us. That God can fulfill hundreds of prophecies over thousands of years, fortify his plan of redemption, and give hope and peace to a weary world through a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and placed in an animal's food dish. That God would take something so ordinary and basic and save the world through that baby. The miracle and the mundane. So I, I want to wonder together for a moment. I want to have some fun with this, maybe speculate a little bit, maybe uh, tiptoe on the edge. We've talked about what the Christmas story was like from an earthly perspective. What about heaven's perspective? Just, just ponder this. Just picture the throne room of heaven. God is seated on his throne. The angels are gathered around. We get this picture in Revelation where the four living creatures are standing around the throne. We have a similar picture in the book of Job where the angels are consulting and reporting with God. There's this picture in the throne room of heaven. The time has come. God says, the fullness of time has come to send forth my son into the world. The time is here. It's time. The moment we've all been waiting for, the moment to institute my plan of redemption practically and personally when I send my son to take on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, here it is. This is the night. And maybe, just imagine with me, let's just get creative with this. Gabriel's standing there, and maybe he leans in and he says, God, how are we going to do it this time? What's the announcement going to be like this time. Come on, let me in, God. What's the plan? I'm excited for this. This is the big night. This is what we've been leading up to. What are we going to do, God? What's the plan? Should it be, uh, should it be like really creative? Like when I announced to Zachariah the birth of John and he was in the temple, the holy place, and then, and then he couldn't speak for nine months. That was pretty creative, God. That was pretty creative. What about to Mary? What about when, when we announced your power, and we announced the birth, and we announced the virgin birth, and this incredible miracle, and we said it to Mary with power? And what about, what about coming in and communicating in a dream like we did with Joseph? That was kind of mysterious, wasn't it? Should we do something exciting like that, God? God, what's your plan? We've, we've got to make this special. We've got to make this memorable. We've got to make this creative. We've got to make this powerful. Uh, this is an important announcement, God. And God says, yeah, we're, we're going to make it important. It's going to be creative. It's, it's going to be special. And I've got a plan. So the angels are gathered around. 
You know, we've talked about the function of angels as doing God's, God's bidding on the earth and carrying God's message, but angels also protect and surround God's glory. You think uh, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were removed for their sin, <clears throat> God placed that angel at the entrance of the Garden of Eden and wouldn't allow them back in to keep sin out of the perfection of the garden. Here these angels are gathered around. They're ready for this announcement. They're ready to hear the plan. And God says, you want to hear the plan? Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Gather around. This time, we're going to send the angel of the Lord. And we're going to send a multitude of the heavenly hosts. We're going to send this huge army of angels to make this announcement. Gabriel's like, oh yeah, God, yeah, this is what I'm thinking about. Yeah, here we go. Who are we going to make it to? Oh, you know where we should go, God? We should go to the temple in Jerusalem. We should stand right in the courtyard in front of everybody up on the mountain. We should make this announcement. Oh, or we could go to the palace and we could do it in front of the king. We could do it from the, the roof and we could make this announcement to the whole city. We got to make this in a place where it can be really public and all these people can hear it. Who, who are we going to give the message to, God? Are we going to give it to a king? Huh? Are we going to give it to a big, a big religious leader, a political leader? Are we going to give it to a, a woman of nobility? Are we going to give it to somebody who has the resources, the networking, maybe the marketing skills that they can really get this message out there when we give it to them? Is that where we're going to go, God? God says, we're going to send the angel of the Lord we're going to send a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And they're going to give the message, the announcement, the birth of my son, Jesus Christ. The moment he is born, we're going to give that message. And you can just see Gabriel. He's like, oh yeah, let's go, let's go. And he says, this multitude of heavenly hosts, they're going to declare glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace with whom he is pleased, all together in unison, and Gabriel's like, you know what we could do? We could have the angels like a choir and they could sing it. And God's like, well, the angels sang at the day of creation in Job 38. And then in the book of Revelation, uh, when, when the lamb is found worthy to open the scroll, we're going to sing again. But between now and then, let's just say it. And Gabriel's like, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Who are we going to say it to, God? And God says, do you see over there, just look over in that, do you see that twinkling light over there? Gabriel says, okay, I see it. That, it's a campfire, right? Outside of Bethlehem. God says, yeah, campfire outside of Bethlehem. Do you see those animals gathered around the fire? And Gabriel's like, yes, those are sheep. God says, yeah, do you, do you see those few men laying around the fire? They're tired, they're hungry, they're weary, they're working late hours. Do you see them? Gabriel says, those are shepherds. And God says, that's who we're going to make the announcement to. Those guys. Now, we've already talked about how angels submit to the will of God, to his plan. But if it were you and I, wouldn't you want to question for a moment are you sure, God, that's, that's who you want to give your message to? Are you sure we shouldn't go to Caesar Augustus, Quirinius? You sure we shouldn't go to the Roman officials? 
Should we not go to King Herod? Are you sure you want to give your message, your one-time big message of the birth of your son, to those people? Thank you very much. Let's say you've got the biggest news of your life. Who are you going to tell first? Huh? You're going to call your friend? You're going to post on social media? You're going to tell a coworker? Are you going to stop in at your parents' place so that you can celebrate with them? I remember when Reese was born. It all happened so fast, yet somehow I had time to take a shower and make a coffee, but I've already told you that story. <clears throat> when Reese arrived and Elsie was doing well, I slipped into the bathroom in the room to send some text messages to grandparents because it's the first grandchild. We knew they were going to jump in the car. They were going to be right there to celebrate with us. And I think my father-in-law was there in like 30 minutes, which was incredible. But maybe what I should have done was exit the room, go down the D-wing to the elevator in the St. John Regional Hospital, down to the lobby, across the parking lot to University Avenue to the corner store. And maybe instead of going into the corner store, I should have walked around back and talked to the guys who were smoking a cigarette and carrying on by the dumpster and said, hey, I've got good news. My wife just had a baby. Do you want to come and see? It just doesn't seem to fit the occasion, does it? It may be helpful for you to know that shepherds were the outcasts of society in this day. Shepherding was not something that people aspired to do. Little kids didn't write on their class project, when I grow up, I want to be a shepherd. It just didn't happen. Uh, David was a shepherd boy. Yeah, because he was the youngest. None of his older brothers wanted to do it, right? When the prophet Jesse shows up to crown the new king, goes through all the brothers, is this all the sons? Well, there is yet but the youngest, but he's out in the field taking care of the sheep. Well, we're not going to sit down until he gets here. And then later on, his dad's like, hey boy, you want to take cheese to your brothers at the battlefront? You're not doing anything, are you? You're just watching sheep? Yeah, go take cheese to your brothers. Do you remember the prodigal son? What was he doing when he was at his lowest point? He was feeding the pigs. He's doing the dirty work for somebody else's animals out in the field at his lowest point. Now, owning animals was prestigious. It showed wealth. <coughs> how many camels did Abraham have? Remember? Job, how many animals did he have? It showed wealth. But being the hired hand to count sheep all day, that was a menial task. It doesn't necessarily take a college education to watch someone's sheep. It does take a lot of time. It cuts into your social life. So it probably would have been for people who are more outcast loners, didn't have a lot of friends or family, didn't have a lot of social life. But there's also this religious separation too. Watching sheep is a full-time job, 24-7. These shepherds are out here. It's nighttime. It's late. They're still taking care of their sheep in the late hours because somebody's got to watch the sheep. Shepherds had to work on the Sabbath because somebody had to watch the sheep. So they would have been deemed unclean, ceremonially unclean, not welcome, not fit for the temple. They would be 
looked down upon religiously, socially, and economically. That's who God proclaimed with a multitude of angels the birth of his one and only son, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Why? I really think there's a message in who the message is given to. The recipient of a message has some bearing on that message itself, don't they? Have you ever gone out to your mailbox? Maybe this happens a lot for you in this season and the flag is up, so you open it up and there's a beautiful Christmas card in there, right? Like it's bright red, it's got some holly stenciled on the outside, a little bit of decoration. When you pick it up, it's one of those Christmas cards like you know, it's substantial. There's something in there. Or you get a box on the front deck when you get home. Amazon delivered the parcel, right? <clears throat> and you get that little bit of excitement. What do you do when you hold that card for the first time or you pick up that box? Before you open it, what's the first thing that you do? Who's it from? Who's it to? Is it addressed to me? Is it written to me? Right? Don't you? Who's it for? My kids, when we check the mail, is there anything for me? Have you been wrapping Christmas gifts in this season? We've, we've been sending some cards and some gifts to some family members, dropping them off, and the kids say, is that for me? How many times have you had to tell your kid in this season, that's not for you. We are not buying Christmas gifts for you. We're getting it for your nephew, for whoever. Um, how does that feel when you pick it up and it's not for you? I don't know what's up with our home address, but we get other people's mail sometimes, like packages. A few weeks back, we got this, this box. It's heavy. It feels like some sort of tool, some sort of piece of metal in there. And you get home, you're all excited, you pick it up, and it's like this big letdown. Oh, that's not for me. The government has this incredible new program, and they're, they're investing this much money into Nova Scotians, and you look into it, and oh, I'm not eligible. It's not for me. How does that feel? Might be a great message, that's awesome, but it's not for me. There's a message in who the message was first proclaimed to. It wasn't announced to a king, it wasn't announced to a Roman dictator, it wasn't announced to the wealthy, the popular, the well-known, the well-liked. It was announced to some smelly, lonely shepherds who couldn't find a better job. Their instructions were to find the babe. Think about these instructions. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, that's, that's random. But, but we know mangers because we take care of sheep. We've got a manger right here. Let's check this manger. No, he's not in there. Uh, we had a pastor's cluster there last month. And one of the pastors, he was talking about the Christmas story and the simplicity of the Christmas story. It really got my mind racing. And he said, how many mangers would have been in Bethlehem? How many Barns and stables and caves and backyards and dog houses did the shepherds have to run around and check before they found the one that Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus was actually at. It says they went with haste and when they found the baby and Joseph and Mary, how many did they have to check? Were they running around all night? They're just looking for a pile of swaddling cloths in an animal's food dish. How many leftovers did they, they dig through? When the shepherds found Jesus, they made known the saying. The passage says, 
all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Do you think maybe some of the wonder was not only about the story itself, but about the fact that the shepherds were the ones who received the announcement and the ones who are carrying the message and going and telling it on the mountain? The fact that God would share his story with the world through people like them. But isn't that God's MO? Doesn't, doesn't God, God's plan often involve the miraculous and the menial and the mundane, the extraordinary through the ordinary, the supernatural and the simple? I mean, Jesus is a carpenter from Nazareth, right? And Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth, like from that place? Jesus worked with his hands. I wonder if he got splinters. I wonder if he got tired of the work. I wonder if his wrists were sore after hammering or sanding all day. I I don't know carpentry, so I don't know what to throw in there. But Jesus calls 12 disciples who were normal hometown boys, fishermen, uneducated, strong like bull, smart like dump truck. Those kinds of guys. The guys he would leave his mission to when Jesus returned to heaven. Jesus' followers are not the social elite. They're not the wealthy. They're not necessarily the popular. The early church resembled the ragtag crew of Jesus' disciples. Look at what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. I appreciate that. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, when's this list going to end? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We're not here today because we're the best and brightest. I don't know if you figured that out yet. <laughs> we don't have it all figured out. We're not thumbing our nose at the world because we're elite, because we're dressed in our Sunday best. In fact, God's message, as carried by those shepherds that night, is just the opposite. God came for the lonely, the destitute, the hurting, the hungry, the cold the tired. Jesus came to save the lost, to set the captives free, to heal the sick. The religious elite of Jesus' day, they didn't didn't understand this. Luke chapter 5 and verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, why do you spend your time with those people? Why are you hanging out with people like them? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' birth is announced to shepherds because Jesus came for the shepherds. The message of Christmas is for people like the shepherds, people like you, People like me, people who are broken, people who are messed up, people who don't have it figured out, people who are in desperate need of a savior. That's that's who Jesus came for. 
The message of Christmas is not glitz and glamour. It's, it's for the ordinary. It's for the simple. Now it's up to us to carry that message, simple and ordinary as we may be, because Jesus came for people like you and me. Jesus himself, in his humanity, was not necessarily beautiful, handsome, majestic, desirable, attractive, celebrity person, one of those contagious personalities that people were just drawn to. Isaiah chapter 53 says that he was despised and rejected. He was acquainted with grief, from whom men hid their faces. Christmas points to the cross. It has to point to the cross. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Isn't it interesting that the Son of God, who is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, the night that he was born, the big announcement by the angels and the multitude of the heavenly hosts is two shepherds, and then Jesus uses all of these instances to refer to himself as the good shepherd and to refer to us as the sheep. You think of that beautiful psalm, Psalm 23. You think of Jesus' story about the lost sheep and how Jesus would leave the 99 righteous persons and go and find the one that was lost and carry it back on his shoulders. That Jesus would liken himself to the marginalized and the outcasts and the people who just couldn't find a better job, who had to work 24-7, who were ceremonially unclean, and who lived outside of the town, that Jesus would liken himself and his ministry to a shepherd. The message proclaimed to shepherds points to the good shepherd who came for the lost sheep. As we close, I'm going to close in prayer. If you're participating online and you would like us to be praying about something, you want to connect personally about something, there's the online connect card that you can fill out. If you would like to hang around after the service, we would love to pray with you, to minister with you. You can do so up front after the service. We'll be in the lobby as well. You can also fill out a connect card and drop it in the offering, offering bucket. If, if you want to connect personally, we can do that. Can I just encourage you? I think one of the devil's tactics, this whole bait and switch thing that he does, is to try and use a little bit of the truth that God is glorious and miraculous and majestic, and then apply it to us in a sense where we try and find God in what we deem miraculous and exciting, and glitz and glamour, and the wonder and magic of Christmas. And we chase after those things that look so good and so cool, thinking that that's the way that God is going to speak to us. That's the way that God is going to meet us. But the message of Christmas is that Jesus is the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, and the shepherds were the ones who received the announcement. And God's Miracle shows up in the menial. I just praise God that he would reach people like you and me and choose to spread his message through people like you and me, people like those shepherds.
Can we stand as we close in a word of prayer this morning? Father God, I want to thank you for who you are. As we pause for a moment at the end of this service and just consider what your Holy Spirit may be impressing on our heart. Jesus, we thank you for the simplicity of Christmas. We thank you for, in a world filled with busyness and distractions and noise and clutter and chaos and complexity, the message of peace in Christmas is simple. It's a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. God, thank you that at the right time, you sent your one and only son into this world to live a sinless life so that Jesus, you could die on the cross to pay for my sins, to pay for the sins of the world. And that each one of us now, under the sound of my voice, under this gospel message, we now have an opportunity to respond to your love. And we now get to be children of the king. Not because we grew up in a palace. Not because we grew up in wealth or nobility. Prestige or fame. But because you met us where we were at. Lonely on a dark night. In a desolate field. Doing a job that we didn't care for and had no passion for. You met us in those places. God, we praise your holy name for the baby that was born to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this Christmas. Thank you for the simple message of Christmas and the message of the gospel of your love, the good news that was first given to those shepherds. God, help us to run in haste. Help us to share all the things that we've seen and heard about your love and who you are and the gracious and good heavenly father that you are. God, may other people see the transformational power of your love through ordinary, simple, basic people as we are. God, thank you for your glory and for the miracle of Christmas this year. In Jesus' name, amen.